The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. In a world where people made movies about superheroes that demanded discussion, two men decided to rise to the challenge. And then one man completely lost the audio file, forcing the two men to revisit a previous discussion. This is Totally Super. Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made, sometimes twice. My name is Justin. Sometimes twice. And my name is Arthur. Um, so this is X2, X-Men United, uh, the wonderful sequel to the original X-Men movie, this one coming out on April 23rd, 24th of 2003. And speaking of things that should have come out in April, um, <laughs> we recorded <laughs> the, uh, the first X-Men podcast way back when, one of the very first ones we recorded, and then we waited a couple of weeks and we decided to sit down and record X2 and X3 together so you could have the entire trilogy ready to go. And then we let them sit for a while. And we, because Avengers came out and Ant-Man came out and there are other things that we kind of wanted to talk about. And we finally got around to posting the first X-Men. And then I went to get the audio for X2. And it turns out, that some of it wasn't there. Yeah, so. no, that was that was on me. Uh, since some of our stuff we record remotely and then have to combine our audio files later. Uh, this is a little glimpse behind the veil how the magic happens. So or when you listen really, next I guess, week, more how the sausages are made. When you listen next week, the X three recording we do have the audio for, so you'll be hearing our thoughts from months ago. After you, it's a very strange combination. Uh, yeah. We here we are, X two X Men United. At the end of the original X Men, there an argument could be made that the X Men movie was successful in that they pulled it off, and that is really the thing that it did. It made what could seem very silly, especially in the wake of like the '90s cartoon and bright colors and everything the getting Wolverine right like it could have not worked and it worked they made it work was it great it wasn't great especially not by our standards now especially in the action department it delivered what it set out to deliver which was showing us the characters that's what it did it I showed would argue us the characters. my my personal feel it was great by the standards of the late 90s certainly uh but yeah, no, we the metric is completely different now. You see, I don't know if it is great by the standard of the na- late 90s. Even at the time, I had a huge problem with Storm. I had a huge problem with the terrible line. I had a problem with some of the moments that just seemed a little ham-fisted. And if you look at some of the movies in the late 90s, we're still talking... Seven years after Terminator 2 and True Lies and the everything made by James Cameron. And in the era of John Woo movies and like action movies were they had gotten it down to how to do a, a good balls to the wall action movie. And for as much money as might have been poured into design, I didn't feel like the effects were all up to snuff. And certainly the action at the end, like I said, they, the, the climax of the movie, they invade a gift shop. 
That's the climax. Mm-hmm. They're in the gift shop. So, and it's worth noting that the original X Men movie was um, a lot cheaper than this one. The original X Men movie uh, was budgeted at. Oops, I went to the wrong link. So bear with me. Um, it is budgeted. The original was budgeted seventy five million dollars and came home with the box office of two hundred ninety six point three million dollars. With Wolverine and Hugh Jackman being clearly the breakout star. So from a seventy five million dollar budget, this one jumps up to a budget of almost one hundred twenty five million dollars. So we're talking like two thirds of the original budget plus the original budget to make this film. Yeah. And I think that that money being poured into polishing off the action made this the X-Men movie that I was hoping the first one would be. Again, mm-hmm. I want to be clear. I was super thrilled. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that they did an X-Men movie because when I was growing up, the X-Men were the most popular comic book around, but you only really knew them if you knew comic books. And then there was the cartoon, and I guess people liked that. But the idea that this was a a real movie that came out and was a hit, was a giant hit, was that was the bar. That was the only bar for me, was that it happened. Was that it works? Yeah. But now the yeah. question is, is can it be really good? Keep in mind, we are side by side with the new Star Wars movies are coming out now and Spider-Man has come out and we are getting a real sense of what you can do with what CGI is able to accomplish for superheroes, especially when it comes to Spider-Man. Like you cannot overstate the importance of the arrival of Spider-Man, which is just a giant phenomenal hit. And then Mm -hmm. X2 comes around and the question is, is does X2 pull it off? Do you remember whether or not you went to go see X2 in the theater, whether or not you were excited about X2 having seen X1? Oh, hugely so. Um, I went with the same group of friends that I did that I went to go see X1 with. Uh, and I mean, I remember leaving. Here's the thing. I remember leaving the first X-Men just over the moon and having really, really loved it. Uh, and a lot of that came from, you know, as we discussed in the first uh, in the first film, the I was not as huge a X-Men devotee as you were. Um, like, for instance, I never liked Wolverine at all. X-Men, the film, was the first time that I actually ever really liked the character. Uh, so I felt it was, I'd received sort of a reintroduction to the characters that I really enjoyed. Uh, so I was absolutely, uh, I was really excited about seeing the second one. Uh, and I remember leaving feeling just as happy, if not more. So I agree with you uh, in that as soon as the film was done, instantly I was thinking, well, this is a far better movie than the first one was. There's a There are two different kinds of feelings you get when you watch a movie that you're enjoying. There's the one where you walk out smiling. And the first movie, I walked out smiling. I was just like, wow, this I can't believe it. They did it. They really did a good job, guys. <laughs> this one... I walked out with a holy crap, like, oh my gosh, this is 
this is so right. Such a move in the right direction. Such an amping up of all the stakes. The effects are better. The actions are better. There are more characters. The characters are more interesting. The characters that you have are better. There are twists and turns and betrayals. The plot is sprawling. When I do the plot summary, there's just so much happening. And yet it remains emotionally grounded. And the end of the movie is just such a sucker. One, two punch at the end that by comparison to walk out with sort of a stunned look on my face. And I had brought my little brother to the movie too, who was maybe just a slightly too young to really get the slightly too young to really get the weight of what had happened. And it was hard for him because he liked the first one. And so he had no idea that Jean Grey was going to die. What Jean Grey can't Mm -hmm. die, which is, Maybe what they wanted for people who didn't know that that's what Jean Grey is most famous for doing. Yeah, I will so, say the uh, in retrospect, the ending has not held up for me. Uh, at least the really? Jean Grey aspect of the ending. Oh, not not at all. Because the the emotional moment. Um, well, heck, you know what? Let's let's just dive on in here and discuss the. Yeah, shall I do the plot know, this real quick? Fit, this, yeah, go ahead. Do the plot, and then we'll die. <laughs> do the plot, and then we'll start at the end. Yeah, there's no way, by the way, that we're going to do this in under a minute because there's so much happening. No, See, go for it. Nightcrawler has attacked the White House. By by the way, Nightcrawler, my favorite, has attacked the White House. But he wasn't really in control of himself. He almost kills the president, but he gets wounded and disappears. This creates an enormous firestorm among the anti-mutant hatred that is still stemming and brewing in the country, especially after the events of the first X-Men movie. It comes to Professor Xavier and his team of X-Men to figure out what Nightcrawler was doing there. And so Xavier looks him up and sends Jean and Storm to get him. But not before Wolverine shows up back at the mansion having gone to Akalay Lake, but not found the thing that he was really looking for. Wolverine is put in charge of the kids while Jean and Storm go off to try and find Nightcrawler. In the meantime, Xavier and Cyclops go to question Magneto about the attack. But you see, there are some things going on that you haven't kept in mind. One, Jean and Storm, when they find Nightcrawler, have to take him onto the X-Jet and they go flying. At the same time, Wolverine is attacked at the X-Mansion and goes into a berserker rage to defend himself against the troops belonging to one William Stryker. William Stryker has a child who Xavier was not able to help, and William Stryker, in his role as both an advisor to the White House and a military man, has decided that he is going to destroy all the mutants using Cerebro. He has got a military force with him who is going to just wipe out every mutant at that school but what they're not equipped for is Wolverine, who William Stryker knows intimately because he was involved in creating Wolverine's skeleton. What an interesting coincidence that is. Wolverine escapes with a few of the mutants as they go travel and stay at Bobby Iceman's house and a sort of heavy-handed allegory for coming out to your parents uh, as a gay teenager, which is something that is uh, that Brian Singer is a gay director. would We'll talk about it. Um, uh, eventually, they leave Bobby's house 
and they are picked up by the X-Jet. The X-Jet is, uh, is downed by the Air Force, but is saved by Magneto. How can that possibly be? You see, Xavier has been kidnapped by, Xavier has been kidnapped by Stryker, as well as Cyclops, and Magneto has been broken out of his plastic prison by Mystique, who has, in a very violent turn, put metal into someone's blood that Magneto is able to turn into little bullets and kill everybody, and he escapes, and he saves the X-Gen. So now, Magneto, along with Mystique are with all of the X-Men and we are having loyalties changing within that group and they all decide to go to Alkali Lake together to go save Xavier and Cyclops. Battles ensue, loyalties are tested, things go back and forth, there's stuff with Bobby and Rogue, everything kind of goes crazy and by the time the movie ends, Stryker is tied to a tree, Wolverine has stopped him, the mutants are not all killed because Magneto makes Stryker's mind-controlling son use Cerebro through Xavier to try and kill all the humans, but that is stopped. Finally, everyone escapes on the X-Jet, but not before the devastation of the battle causes the dam at Alkali Lake to break. When it breaks, a cavalcade of water comes out about to destroy everyone and everyone anyone who's there but Jean Grey using her telekinetic powers pushes back the water and then when it seems to overwhelm her fire erupts in her eyes she steps off of the jet she lifts the jet up something she could almost she could only barely close doors in the previous X-Men movie now she's lifting up jets stopping the water fire erupts around her and the water seemingly kills her as the X-Men escape delivering a dire warning to the president of the United States and the rest of the world that they'll be watching and to strive for peace well done there sir. we go Phew. it's a lot breathe there's a lot going on. So let's there's there's a let's, lot to unpack. So let's break it down. So Xavier jumping to and the Cyclops uh, let's, and Magneto and Mystique, Wolverine well, and the X Kids, Wolverine and the X Kids, and then the Nightcrawler subplot, and that's really what we have going on. And then at the end, the the I guess you have Striker's goals and the Phoenix stuff. That's sort of the five well, and then you, main points. Yeah, and the. I mean, essentially, the I am left with the realization that at the end of the day, um, any time that the original X-Men trilogy tried to deal with the Phoenix plot, I felt that they came up short. Uh, certainly, when we get into X3, we'll talk about, you know, the innumerable, way, innumerable ways it came up short in that one. Uh, or maybe like we X3, already have. Da, da, da. Or maybe we have. Uh, yeah, I feel like X3 actually could have almost been a good movie had they just cut out the entirety of the uh, Dark Phoenix plot. Um, and also the this script. This one... <laughs> the, uh, the, the thing with this is, yes, they showed Gene throughout the film, sort of, they made a good, they did a decent job of showing, oh, I'm getting this more power and I'm not sure what it means. Uh, what they didn't do... I feel was enough to show why she was so scared of that power. Uh, and the reason why the ending doesn't hold up for me, uh, going back and looking at it, uh, the emotion, like, um, in terms of the acting of the ending, uh, I still feel was quite good. The, the moment of, uh, Cyclops and Wolverine, uh, sort of hugging afterwards to me, that's still a very powerful moment. Um, that's actually my least favorite moment, but we'll talk. Um, yeah, we, um, because the, uh, 
that was the first time that I and I think if I remember correctly, like the thing is for me, the that was the first time that we really saw some serious emotion from Wolverine. Uh and really what made the moment work for me was uh was Wolverine's tears, not so much Cyclops's, because that's it was not I mean, there's a certain trope of when the when the really stoic character breaks, uh, there's a you know there's additional impact given. Uh, now that trope got overplayed in X three by having him break a lot, but to my recollection, this was the first time that we'd seen him even show a slight bit of breaking towards grief. So I really appreciated that. Um, what really failed on it though was there's just this huge plot hole of. Why does she have to leave the ship? Uh, why does she have to leave the the plane in order to lift it up and get it away? There is no justification for that other than she wanted to kill herself, which could still potentially be justified if they had done a better job of showing how terrified she was. Like, even just a shoot, give her a vision or something halfway through the film of what will happen if she comes into her full power. Uh, So that's something that convinces her that, oh, not only do I need to save my friends, I need to somehow remove myself from the equation. Um, So ultimately, like, at the end, she just died because, well, we're doing the Phoenix saga, and so Jean Grey needs to die. There There was no internal justification for it. Again, we are jumping to the end. I have to say that I never was bothered by the fact that she steps off. It sort of seems like she needs to have some sort of visual contact with the things that she's trying to do. There's always been a sense. I've never gotten a sense that she can control things from within the way that say Magneto does. I've always gotten. Well, she didn't sort of, she didn't really have visual contact with the missiles that she manipulated. But she wasn't able to manipulate them all that well. It's not like she was able to concentrate and suddenly the missile just did everything she wanted. She really, really, really had to concentrate. And this was way more than that. She has to... I've always sort of gotten the sense. And again, this is from my vast knowledge and experience at being a telekinetic. Um, You have to look at something and sometimes put your hand out to make it stop. There's an element of the force that you're using where your hand has to be thrust forward. Um, well, okay, I will I will give you that. Um, like, so let's say that is, I think, to me, perfectly acceptable headcanon. However, as a scriptwriter, that is all it takes is one extra line of dialogue somewhere else in the film where you say it's a lot where you have her saying, you know, it's a lot easier for me to move things if I can see them. That's it. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it's you like here's the thing. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with your headcanon, but even allowing that that headcanon is correct they could have set that up better still. I will say on Trek off. I've said a lot that I love the movie star Trek generations. I love it. It's my favorite of the next gen films, but there is always, always, always going to be a gigantic problem with the last third of the movie, because when Picard gets a chance to relive his failure and put right, what went wrong, he says, I know exactly what I need to do. I need to go back to Soren the moment before he destroys the star and stop him. And Except, I'm always kinda, uh, like, instead of like, going back to that time when he was on like, my ship, know. surrounded by my crew. Yeah, three you know three days later or earlier. Yeah. So yes, I get that. If that sticks in your craw, it's going to unravel 
the emotional impact of the end. If that if that is what you're thinking about, it's one of those things that it either has to work or it doesn't work. Um, well, no, so, and I, 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 I'm quick to point out that this is, you know, after going back to watch it 15 years later, suddenly this flaw jumps out to me a lot more than it did when I first saw it. When, actually, when I first saw it in the theater, I didn't think it, I didn't notice it at all. Very powerful ending to me. Um, Let's jump to the I beginning just, a little bit. Because yeah. the begin the beginning was powerful for me for two reasons. One, they used a piece of music that I love at the beginning of the movie that I used in the very first cut of the very first movie that I ever made back in college. So I was very happy for that. But more than that, I love Nightcrawler. I love Nightcrawler. He was always my favorite. I was maybe Wolverine was my favorite for a little while, but Nightcrawler, especially Circa Excalibur, which is an X-Men spin-off comic that came out like in the 1980s where everybody thinks the X-Men are dead. So Kitty Pride, Colossus, and Nightcrawler join with uh, Phoenix 2, which is Rachel Summers, which is Jean Grey's alternate future daughter, don't ask. Um, and uh, and Captain Britain eventually uh, Warlock slash Doug and Rain and and Captain Britain join as well. Or Captain Britain is always there, but a character named Megan. Just really interesting and funny book, especially when it's written and drawn by my favorite artist and my favorite, one of my favorite writers, Alan Davis. So my love of Nightcrawler was intense because when the mo- when the book started, the book was these five characters and it really was your team of five, sort of your, your team of characters, your party of five that you might have in Cabin in the Woods or whatever. It was really clear cut who the characters were and what role they performed. And Nightcrawler mm-hmm. was the joke-cracking swashbuckler with the cool power who was always cutting jokes, but then occasionally would bring forth the fact that he was a man of faith, that he believed not just in a random God, but he he was a Christian. And as someone who is of that persuasion myself, having a character There is a... There's an interesting... You you make a good point. There's a very interesting duality of archetype to Nightcrawler um, that they didn't play into as much in the film. And In the film, he really... they, They leaned more into the tormented man of God who'd been you know, abused growing up because people thought he was a monster. Um, It is, there are two very common archetypes in superhero and mythic stuff. One of them is absolutely the trickster, the joke cracker, the, you know, he's the one that you throw into the party to essentially lighten the mood periodically. Um, And then the other archetype is very much the, the conflicted man of faith. It is astonishingly rare to have both of those archetypes embodied by the same character. Uh, frequently, they they are kind of seen as, if not archetypes in conflict, they just don't... You wouldn't necessarily think that they would mesh that well. Uh, so in the comics, they did a really good job, I think, of balancing between the two of them. Uh, sorry, continue. Well, he, yeah, he, I guess... He's like a youth pastor, I guess. <laughs> he's, like, he's really energetic <laughs> and funny. Um, that's and oh, that's yeah. Okay, there you go. There you go. Yeah, he would he would fight with swords and he would use his tail. And there are so many pictures of him fighting with like true like rapiers. Like he liked to go out and 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 that's the way that that's the nightcrawler that I loved. So when the movie starts, not knowing what the character is going to be. Seeing what he can do, the opening scene of the film, the the way they use teleportation as a devastating power to have in close quarters combat, where you just that go, wow, there was phenomenal. There's no way to defend against that. Doesn't matter how many guys you have, a guy who can, and they they had him do it, appear, 
punch you up into the air and then teleport to the other side of you while you're in the air and throw you down to the ground. It's amazing. And I'd never Mm -hmm. seen anything like it except in the pages of the comics. And this is, it's one thing in the first movie to have a guy with claws, but I've seen Freddy Krueger. That's a guy with claws. I've seen somebody do that before. I've seen Enter the Dragon. I like, like I've seen that happen. And I've seen somebody shoot lasers out of their eyes. Superman can do that. And people who can control Mm -hmm. the weather, those characters are all around and telepaths, but I've never really seen a teleporter used in the way I saw him in the comics. So the movie starts off- It is a much more fast-paced kind of power and effect. Well, the sequel to the movie- Yeah, the sequel to the movie whose action didn't impress me started with an action scene like I've never seen before. It started Mm -hmm. off and it was just like, look, we are here, we're large, we're in charge, we're badass, and we're going to do this. So I am thrilled at the beginning. And again, I'm thrilled at Wolverine is more muscular. He looks more like the Wolverine I know. His hair is a little more like he's a little grittier, a little gruffer. He's just comfortable in his own skin in doing it. The X-Mansion looks bigger and more like a mansion than it ever did before. Storm has lost her accent. Jean is ag- has got the hair. Xavier does the cool thing where he stops everybody mid-flight. Pyro's there. Like, I'm really... I'm really getting a sense of everyone is the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. And whereas the last one was, you know, they were pretty close and you're pretty happy that they got pretty close. But in this version, they're all the best version of themselves. So the introduction yeah. to everybody is, is so wonderful to see these characters are who they're supposed to be more. I will argue than they have been since. Like this is this is the the ultimate version of these characters. One can say that I could what absolutely they do see with that. what they do with Wolverine in Logan is amazingly cool. But that's not the Wolverine that I knew. This is the Wolverine that I knew. Everyone seemed the way they were supposed to be. So as mm-hmm. the movie starts, I am feeling so so good, especially the especially the bit um where Xavier stops everybody from walking and moving it's just it's chilling the amount of power that he has and evidently the power mm-hmm. you know that nobody knew he had which is to chop all, stop all the video playback and music that's going on at the museum at the same time but hey we'll go with it yeah your thoughts uh my thoughts are it, you speak of uh the you know the chilling amount of power that Xavier has. Uh, I think this film more so than the first one really highlighted, highlighted just the, the absolute devastating, terrific power that Magneto has. And I think what did it is that some of the most devastating things he does, he does so casually. Uh, there's no big, you know, there's the old, uh, sense of if somebody has to, you know, do this huge, big, you know, uh, you know, scrunch up their face and, you know, an effort and extend their hand and, you know, shake it like it shows that they're doing something powerful, but that doesn't actually, it doesn't make them seem more powerful than somebody who can do the exact same thing with just a casual wave of his hand and not even so much as raising an eyebrow. Um, it's in the same way that, uh, you know, in a non-superpowered way, why even though, uh, as actors, frequently our our uh, instinct 
when we're saying a really powerful line or something is to is to get loud to raise our voices when we're commanding somebody when in fact what's actually much more powerful and more commanding is not raising your voice and just saying it because in doing so you just assume it, you're showing that the character just assumes that they're going to be obeyed uh in the same way magneto first when he just casually rips the iron from the guy's blood and then turns them into these little you know whirling bullets of death uh with just like a slight, slight smile on his face, and that's it. Uh, other than that, he's just completely still. Uh, that conveyed something terrifying. Uh, and then, far and away, certainly one of my favorite movements in the film, and uh, certainly a moment where I remember in the theater, everyone just absolutely loved, is uh, at the end when there's like all those guards around the vault door, and then literally every grenade pin just gets pulled. It's it was both funny. Uh, it was it was funny because it was so creative, so it got a good laugh out of people. But at the same time, it also is oh geez, you, this guy is really really tough to go up against. Um, in, in the same so way, so I thought he's... that Magneto. No, go ahead. Uh, I would say so. I'd say Magneto was Magneto was the big boss in the first one. Uh, in the second one, they actually they elevate him to an even more powerful villainous level. I think that's fair to say that all the major mutants get their get their powers extended and they become more powerful. The first one was very interested in being grounded, being real world, and I think as the X Men movies go on, they become less and less interested in that being a thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Xavier goes right along with Magneto. Let's keep in mind, this is a guy who, by the end of the movie, is going to kill every every living person on the planet, either all the mutants or all the humans, with a thought. With a thought mm-hmm. and an amplifier, he can kill everyone on the planet, and there's nothing that anyone can do. You can almost see the argument against mutants, where yeah. it's it's sad and bad that you would have to go after them but the bottom line is that when what do you do about this? There's somebody who is essentially a living nuclear bomb. What do you do against a person like this? With even as well-meaning as Xavier ever was, he almost obliterates the human race in this movie and doesn't even mean to. And it's just, just another Tuesday for the X-Men that he does it. So William Stryker maybe has in his own horrible, horrible, terrible way, a point. Because there are powers going on here that are beyond human understanding. You talk about the acting, and you talk about doing a little, or doing a lot with a little. The combination of Patrick Stewart, which, let's keep in mind, Patrick Stewart can be large and theatrical. Watch him do Picard sometimes. He can be large. Oh, yeah. Huge. The line must be drawn here. No father, and I will make them. You know he can do it, but his quiet Xavier, along with you know Ian McKellen's quiet Magneto, just embodied—is that what they say? It's just amazing. And then you, Brian Cox, also quietly powerful and ultimately confident. Mm-hmm. And the three of them together, the movie is more about them than it is about any of the other things. All the other people things are players moving on the board and Wolverine is the most interesting of those players but certainly he is just another pawn in these three men with the game of chess that they play yeah 
I could see that. Um, let's talk briefly about the adventure slash experience of the mutants and Wolverine inside the school and then outside the school. The first thing that the movie delivers on finally you get to see is Wolverine in a berserker rage. And my understanding is that they needed to cut frames and frames to make this movie not get an R rating because you see what Wolverine can do with those claws in Mm -hmm. this movie. In the, in the first movie, he's cutting guns open and, you know, he stabs one person once. In this movie, he's just going after soldiers and he's slashing them up. At one point, he just jumps and you know, buries, you know, he's just murdering people. Well, he's just yeah, murdering well, I mean, people everywhere. <laughs> a central tenant to Wolverine's character is to varying degrees, he is a killer. And so much of the best Wolverine stories that have come from the the comics have been how he deals with that. Uh, he's gone through periods of his life where he's much more okay with it than he is. But at the end of the day, if you take away the savage, feral killing instinct from Wolverine, he becomes less of a character. Yeah. And it's the instinct. It's an instinct, you know, today... At the time of this recording, I am covered with slashes because I had an appointment to get my cat his rabies shot today. He's a few months overdue. And so I was going to bring him. I ended up not bringing him because I had to try to get him in the cat carrier, at which point he went crazy, slashed me up, hissed, screamed, growled, hissed in ways that he, this cat never hisses, ever. Cut, cut my arms up, sprayed pooped in the root, like did everything that he could possibly do. And it took a couple of hours and, and he finally is warming up to me a little bit again, but there is a real sense of, you know, a Wolverine is not a, a, a wolf, you know, there it's easy to, to get those, you know, separated mm-hmm. out. The idea of a Wolverine's berserker rage is exactly that my cat was running and slashing he didn't remember who i was or that i was the one who gave him the food he didn't you know all he knew is he wasn't going and when he was when the the switch was flipped he was going to go crazy with his claws so Mm -hmm. i really get the sense that once wolverine starts there is he has to it's almost like the hulk isn't it like it's almost like well it's i mean it's it's literally the term berserker the uh, um, yeah, I mean the actual he, the, the animal the Wolverine comes from the same family as badgers, which are just infamous for just being the most vicious little buggers in the world. Um, very very different from cat, wolves, but... actually. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that's what I I like that Wolverine is not. Yes, he kills people, but he's not a murderer, right? He's not like Magneto who goes and he's doing it. He's conscious. Wolverine is almost all like there. I think there's a point where Wolverine kind <laughs> all of, of his murders are second by, degree. Yeah. I think that Wolverine wakes up and looks around and goes, Oh, what did I do? Like, I really think that there's a sense of that. So mm-hmm. then they go and they escape and there's an extended period at, at Bobby's house in a scene that if done, even slightly differently would have been so heavy handed and a little ham. It's still a little ham fisted because the mom does say, have you tried not being a mutant? But this is Mm -hmm. clearly, um, this is clearly about, you know, this is clearly about the story of, of, I guess, young Brian Singer, a, a young, you know, coming of age and not the, 
part of Brian Singer that we don't want to talk about so much. Um, again, we're going to be talking a little bit about Brian Singer here, a lot of controversy surrounding the man, as we said before. So with all the controversy surrounding him, I want to be able to talk about the experience he was trying to convey without touching on some of the more dastardly accusations that have been thrown at him that have kind of gotten him drummed out of Hollywood at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So all of that being said, I think there's got to be something here semi-autobiographical that he is trying to get. There was a, uh, I mean, I think you've hit on it. Not only was it autobiographical for him, but also this movie came out late nineties at a time where I, so this was sort of a contemporary of will and grace, like the, the whole concept of the, 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 something that has now become a sort of a trope of the young kid uh, or high schooler coming out to his parents uh, about being gay was only really first being explored to a degree that it was considered sort of the acceptable thing in the mainstream. And, uh, you know, so it may it makes absolute sense that they that they played that up uh, based on when the movie came out. Yeah, it's again, it's what the X Men has also been about. It's also been about a discrimination using mutant. You know, the thing that that being a mutant. There are two kinds of mutants, right? There are mutants that hide in plain sight, like Bobby, like to a certain extent Rogue. Um, who, if you just saw them, you wouldn't know what they really are. And can you respect them and love them as people when you find out that despite looking just like you, that they're different? And mm-hmm. then there's what the X-Men were about in the 60s, which is absolutely an allegory for racism, where there are mutants oh, who good point. look totally different than you and who like are totally crawlers. different than you. Like Nightcrawler, like Cyclops, who, you know, if you look at what the X-Men looked like when they first came out, you had Beast, Angel, Cyclops, who could never show his eyes, Iceman, who looked like a big ball of ice in the comics, like when he presented himself. They were so very different looking than all of us that it would be easy to see the world would see everyone as freaks. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And so this is playing into the definitely the nature versus nature versus nurture element of of the homosexuality argument especially back in the late 90s where it's being asserted like no i can't try not being this way this is just the way i am are you going to accept me for who i am is that's what they're doing that's that they're they're trying to say to middle america who maybe hasn't considered this hey look at it from this point of view if there's a it's it becomes allegorical if not autobiographical so i am happy to see that they're doing it it is maybe a minute too long. It is maybe you know one or two lines are just a little on the nose. But X Men is an episode of Degrassi. Yeah, I'll do it. Like, I, yeah. I can, I can, I can go with it a little bit. They certainly pay off the action later on. Um, mm-hmm. When we do finally get to see what Nightcrawler is like again, we're talking about discrimination that he would be considered to be a devil when he is in fact a man of faith. Mm-hmm. When we talk about Nightcrawler, I was bummed a little bit that I didn't get the Nightcrawler that I wanted. And the the bummer about that is Alan Cumming, if you look at him in like Goldeneye, he can absolutely be big and wonderful. Like Alan Cumming oh, can be... Oh, his biggest... Uh, I mean, he's primarily a stage actor. His biggest thing was when he played the uh, 
the host in Cabaret, uh, and which is absolutely just like Alan Cumming is one of the definitive trickster characters like in Broadway history. Uh, he, you're absolutely right. He could have played the uh, the the big and wild Nightcrawler super well. So yeah, so the fact that he didn't is problematic to me because I I wanted to see him in that's the Nightcrawler that I wanted to see, and we're getting a new a, you know new young Nightcrawler, which reminds me very much of the Wolverine and the X Men cartoon versions of these of these characters in the current iteration mm-hmm. of the of the X films, and I like that character too. But I wanted to see the Nightcrawler that I love. Storm is better. She finally, Halle Berry's so much better without the stupid accent she was doing the first time around. She's just like, accent, what accent? Pff, let's keep going. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm digging well, on that story. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Magneto's escape. We talked about how powerful he is. Well, actually, I, I I, lo- before, we, before we move on to that, actually, just because you've, you've brought up something. So we've touched on Nightcrawler a little bit. The, the Nightcrawler Storm storyline. Uh, which was their examination. Again, a very common trope of the one character who does not have faith, one character who does, and their discussion between the two. How do you feel the, let's, for lack of a better word, the faith storyline of this film? How do you feel that played out and developed? Um, It's hard for me to see. I have so many prejudices coming into the film. I mean, the fact is, is that I am so happy to see the presence of faith at all in a film makes me happy. Uh, You and I had Mm -hmm. a a conversation once about the irony of the fact that in the late 80s, early 90s, that the Simpsons were lambasted for being the destruction of the American family, when in fact they're one of the only characters and families on television that regularly go to church. Even if they have problems with their church, they regularly go to church. They're churchgoers. And that is... Like, it's worth noting when they have characters like that, and so often your church-going characters end up being a Ned Flanders. Your church-going characters end up being either stupid or nefarious. When you meet somebody who is of faith, they're ultimately going to be, you know, harboring a dark secret, or they're going to be the bad guys who are really tr- like that's. There is a distrust of people of faith within Hollywood, some of which, frankly, might be earned, but it's there. And so seeing a positive representation of a person of faith was immediately something that I was excited for in and of itself mm-hmm. without any other things mixed to it. Now, when you add in the conversation with Storm and and putting Storm on the opposite side of where Nightcrawler is, again, that's a thing that I had a problem with because Storm, the Storm in the, in the movies is not the Storm from the comics at all. And that is a that is a problem for me. The storm of the comics would not kill. That was her big thing. She would not take a life. Mm-hmm. And the couple of times that she has had to, it has been devastating for her. She raised plants. She believed in the Egyptian in the um, she's from Cairo and the African goddess uh, that that in the world where she came from. She would exclaim goddess when things happen. She was in her own way a person of of faith and deep spirituality. And this storm randomly electrocutes people and is just sort mm-hmm. of, she is a this bit stor- the, of a, The movie version of Storm has a lot more rage within her, I feel, than the comic book version did. Yeah, and, and, is, and, and falls a little flat, frankly, for me. Um, for mm-hmm. what, like, and I said this the first time, Halle Berry is, is a weak link 
in this group. And it's not that she can't be a good actor, but I don't think she's a good match for this character. Uh, yeah. So uh, she's great in like Monsters Ball. So she like we know that she can be great, um, but mm-hmm. is not, in my opinion, here. So I think so you make that, a. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Uh, I was saying the you make a good point with the. Uh, it's interesting the you know how is faith, uh, you know how is faith portrayed? Um, and I can completely understand, especially uh, coming from your background, the, uh, yeah, the faith is more often mocked than, uh, than seen as a positive thing. Uh, for me, I think it's that the thing fell flat for me, and this is so the 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 very common. Uh, story trope for you know crisis of faith characters is you've got the one character who's a believer and the other character who's not. Um, I mean, shoot, you see this in Serenity, even the you know the whole sort of I'm not asking you to believe in anything. I'm just asking you to believe. It's so you have the character who doesn't believe, and then something happens, and then the character who did believe essentially at some point turns and in some way, shape, or form says, "See." And then the person who didn't believe has to some degree a an awakening of faith. I have seen this in Glee. I have seen this in, um, uh, well, X-Men have seen it in Serenity. It's the, and while I definitely, you know, I too prefer it to the, uh, to the even more tired trope of, uh, you know, a person of faith being just straight up, um, you know, hypocritical or outright diabolical. Uh, I still feel like it does faith itself a disservice because neither of those two tropes represents faith in the unlimited nuance that is required. Faith, or even the lack thereof, is one of the most core tenets of the human experience. Like, even somebody who... uh, like even somebody who is an atheist had like the coming to that realization of this is what I believe that was at some point in their life, probably a major journey. Um, and anything that is that central to the human experience is going to have layer upon layer of unlimited subtlety. And ultimately my biggest issue with, uh, with how faith is frequently portrayed in Hollywood and even in this film is it's it's always portrayed with an agenda. Either the goal is to show faith is good or the goal is to show faith is bad instead of just saying, nope, this person has faith, this person doesn't, and just instead of just letting them be and letting the nuance of each human experience uh, sort of reveal itself. Um, you know, I could sort of... Uh, yeah, I, I could just, I guess I could sort of see the writer's agenda behind it as I was watching it with X-Men. And even though it was an agenda that I agreed with, I still didn't like the fact that I could see the agenda. Yeah, I mean, it's feeling the hand of the writer when it comes to it is, I don't mind Faith being used to push forward a character's journey in the film. I mean, everything in the film that is expressed by a character should push forward their journey. That's what you're there Mm -hmm. for. That's why you buy a ticket. Absolutely. Right? You bought a ticket to watch a character's story get moved, the character be moved from one place to another. I will say this, that uh, in that, and maybe we're spending so much time on things that are not just X-Men guys because we reviewed this once before. So we're just kind Mm -hmm. of going down different roads. Bear with us. We're going to do more traditional reviews next time. Just stay with us. I hope you like it. The issue that I have 
had, and I have an issue with the way Serenity deals with faith, because faith, as written by people who don't have it, specifically Joss Whedon, who is an avowed atheist, mm-hmm. is sometimes, is more often, I want to say sometimes, more often than not presented in the way that, that what's his name, that Shepard Book in that movie portrays Faith is to say, and we did a serenity review back on Popoff, and I think I said this then. He says, I don't care what you believe as long as you believe it. And that is not what religious faith is. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is what you've just described as a very humanist, uh, very humanist approach to spirituality. uh, So, which in itself can be quite moving, but I agree with you. That is not, that is not the same. Again, with nuances and everything in place, that's that's not really the same kind of faith as a religious faith would be. And when I say that I'm missing positive depictions of people of faith, specifically religious faith in film, what I guess I'm saying is there are plenty of films about believing in yourself. There are plenty of films about believing in the power of community. There are plenty of films Mm -hmm. about believing that it's important to do the right thing even under difficult circumstances. Even films about believing in things like with The Force, which is the closest, I guess, you can get to a almost almost like a monotheistic, like that is is the... the, I guess the best I've ever seen is, is, is belief in... Neo in the Matrix by Morpheus. Morpheus' belief in Neo is the most positive experience of of theistic faith that I've seen. Mm. In that, interesting that someone says to him, someone says to him, "My beliefs aren't the I don't I don't share your beliefs." And Morpheus' response is, "My beliefs don't require you to." Now that can be taken oh, one yeah. of two ways. Yeah. That can be line. taken. That can be taken to say there's nothing in my belief that's trying to get you to believe what I believe. So step down, take a breath. It can sort of mean that. And I think that's how they meant it, but there is another way to read that with him very gently saying, this is true, whether or not you think it is. Mm -hmm. It's the, and that is honestly what, People of faith believe. It's what I believe about my religion. People of other religions uh, believe that about their religions. They believe, you know, let's say for the sake of taking it out of known religions, there is a religion called called Bobism, where someone, where people believe in Bob. And people believe that Bob is the creator of the universe and what Bob says we should do is what we should do. The people who believe that believe that the people who don't believe that are wrong. Because if they didn't believe they were, if they didn't think they were right, they wouldn't believe in Bob. If they didn't think that Bob created the universe, they would not think that he did. You know what I mean? You can't you can't think that he created the universe and also think that okay, maybe he didn't. That's not the let way me, that works. Let that me let me throw a quick Okay, since since we're here. Let, let me can um, I add a caveat? That's not the way it works yes. for many. Mm-hmm. Um and so what you what a film about including and understanding and accepting differences, part of what I think the world has begun to miss when it comes to people's differences is the ability to say, I think you're wrong and I understand that you think I'm wrong. We can still respect and love and appreciate each other 
and look past those parts of us that we think the other one is incorrect about. And it's not just, mm-hmm. I like this team better than this team. It's, it's I think that this historically happened versus this going, well, I don't think this that, that historically happened. And, and both sides being able to go or, and that until recently, you could even said that about political views. Although I've had people argue with me that, you know, maybe being complacent about political views is leading to the oppression of certain peoples. And so maybe you can't do that. I don't want to have that discussion right now. Um, mm-hmm. But like there's, I do think there is. Well, bringing it back to the, uh, yeah. I mean, bringing it back to the, the central thing of the film is, so what, what you've just, oh no, that's great. No, because what you have just described is you have just scratched the surface of the unbelievably various facets of concepts of faith, which of course suddenly intertwine with, which cannot help but intertwine with politics and culture and all these things. Like there are a million and one rabbit holes that you can get lost in. And that is to me the one of the most powerful and one of the most true aspects of, uh, of humanity's relationship to God, even if God does not exist. The, and too often I see in films that massively nuanced thing, you, you try to reduce it to two or three lines spread out across four or five scenes. And that just, to me, I'm just like, it's just like, un- unless you can really dedicate yourself to exploring it, don't, don't try to. Because I can tell you, you though, end up. When done right, and I'll give you the best, the best example of what I was just talking about that I can think of right now. Uh, there are probably better examples. The best example I can think of is Ghostbusters. And in Ghostbusters, Ray and uh, Winston are driving across a bridge. And Winston asks Ray, you believe in God? And Ray goes, I never met him. Which is clearly, Ray, the scientist, is going, no. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's BS. There's no such thing. Fairytale man yeah. in the sky. No such thing. It's just, it, it is not real. So do you believe in God? Never met him. And Winston goes, well, I do. And I love Jesus' style. And they have a little bit of a discussion about whether or not the things that the events of Ghostbusters have to do with the Bible. And they can say, they both go, huh? And that's it. Oh, you're that's so it. right. Because in that moment, there's no, cause it's not like later on, there's a moment where one turns to the other and says, see there's, it's just, that scene is just, it just reveals their character. The very first when, scene, the very first scene with Nightcrawler and Storm, when they're talking about that, and Nightcrawler says, you know, essentially he gives his reasons for believing and Storm gives her reasons for not believing. You know what? If they had left it at that, I think it would have been fine because it would have been like, this is a scene that just reveals the different characters. Cool. Um, it's that I think they they made reference to it again later um, of – I forget exactly how it was, but it was sort of – there was a little bit of uh, – Storm sort of coming round to Nightcrawler's view. And I think that was the thing that really bothered me about it because I was just like, that is, that was way too simplistic an approach. Had we just had that first scene, it would have been, arguably the dialogue not nearly as good, but it would have been the same as that scene in Ghostbusters where it was just, hey, cool, we we learned something more about these characters. Which yeah, I, you I know, just, which of course I love. I just wish that in a movie that is so much, that that, that on the surface seems to talk about inclusion, I wish that the, in this movie and in more other movies, there were characters who could look at each other and go, that thing about you, I don't get it. I don't get it. But you're great. You're just great. I like it. That's and that a, being yeah, part that's of you a really good is point. Great. Yeah. And, yeah. and I wish 
that could have been done a little more, especially in this movie. This movie is a, about inclusion, and mm-hmm. and it would be a great opportunity to do that. And the comics do pull that off pretty well. Like people people yeah. give, and they do it not just for for. Um, the, there are gay characters. Quicksilver in the comics is gay. There are uh, religious characters. There are characters who believe in you know in in nothing. Characters who hold certain views. And the fact that they can love each other despite that is a, is you know it's a story for our times. And the X Men was designed to be a story for our times back in the '60s. So I think if it's going to be tackled anywhere, this would be the place for it to be tackled. And mm-hmm. and I. Love, I think the other movie that does it really well, when we get to it, will be X-Men First Class because it does talk a bit about breaking the cycle of violence when yeah. when prejudice and violence has reached your door, breaking the cycle of violence by not delivering revenge to people who deserve it. Well, I mean, X-Men First Class does a really good job of that. I, I, I mean, let's be, you know, just to, just to touch very briefly on um, on the way the climate is nowadays, one of the big arguments that's being held uh today uh is exactly what you said before is is it possible for inclusion of certain ideas or allowance of certain ideas to exist um can that in itself encourage you know oppressive behavior uh again like you said um that is that is something that could be talked about for five or six hours and come no closer to an understanding on but x-men first class does a really good job of that because essentially what you've got right there are that you've got Xavier versus Magneto in a nutshell based on that one question. Uh, you know, essentially the, you know, or the, you know, the Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X, uh, the, you know, nonviolent is nonviolent protest enough, uh, or harsher measures needed sometimes like you're right. X-Men first class did a really, really good job of exploring that. Whereas this first X-Men trilogy for the most part, it's kind of assumed that no Xavier's Xavier's mindset is the correct mindset, uh, which, to be fair, for a lot of the original comics, that was also sort of put forward. Was that the path of peace is always the best option? Um, let's get uh, let's touch really quickly on the rest of the film uh, because. There's stuff to unpack that I just want to make sure we touch on. Uh, we haven't even talked yeah. about Lady Deathstrike, who I didn't think I was going to like as much as I did. I really love that she is a woman who goes toe-to-toe with Wolverine in a way that makes sense. It never made sense to me that Mystique would be able to fight Wolverine. It never mm. rang true for yeah. me. That shouldn't be the case. She does. And her her character, her capability, the fact that she's smart despite being silent, the way that she fights, and ultimately... Minus the spin thing. I get so tired of watching people spin in these movies. Um, Mm -hmm. But everything else, uh, the way that she attacks Wolverine was sort of like the prison stabbing. um, And then ultimately her death is brutal. um, Oh, just horrific. um, Because they make you feel the pain of it. And Wolverine is sorry about doing it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and I think what really does it for me is that talk about how good sound design uh, you know, good sound design, 99% invisible. You don't, sound design will have an emotional impact on you without you realizing that it's the sound that's having the emotional impact on you. Uh, the, after she gets filled with the antimantium and sinks into the, the water, the clank the sound when she that did. she yeah. makes, that's what yeah. really just twists the knife. Uh, the, Things, good things to say there. I just love that in the X Men, 
women are way more powerful than the men in the comics and the in the cartoon especially as powerful as Iceman is and Iceman is probably the most Iceman and Xavier are probably the most powerful X-Men if you really think about what they could do well, uh, Iceman's whereas, currently classified as an omega level mutant isn't he Iceman Iceman yeah I think Pro- probably yeah, for exactly Where, you know, Wolverine yeah. can stab you and and Cyclops has laser eyes and Colossus is really strong and yes, Xavier can do what he can do. But then you have Storm and Rogue basically has all the Superman powers, plus she can suck your, your soul in the X-Men. And yeah. And you know, the the even Lady Deathstrike being in here, the fact that we are in a pre like even if you look at like Marvel has not done that well by its female characters up to this point, it's finally kind of getting there. But here mm-hmm. it is in the X-Men movie where there aren't just you don't just have, you know, Susan Richards, who also happens to to be there. You get the sense the women of this are their their power is unquestioned. The fact that Lady Deathstrike is is a woman is not in any way like, and here's our one strong female character. Like, no, you've got mm-hmm. her, you've got Storm, you've got the the Omega level mutant by the by X3, Jean Grey is the most powerful mutant in the world. And the fact yeah, it's that it's one of the most beautiful things about the X-Men is you have a plethora of characters both male and female to choose from to identify with and they are not weakened or they are not strong despite their femininity they're women who are strong and that's it they're not just mm-hmm. strong women yeah. that's one of the things that alexia trackoff has, has talked about once or twice about how she specifically talks about janeway who she hates because all janeway is is a strong movie is a strong woman it's all she is it's all they give her to be and then what she mm-hmm. says she said with men men sure they're they're this and this and this and this and this and this and also strong but women yeah. it's like you if you're strong then that's what you are you're just a strong woman and in this there are mm-hmm. strong nuanced well portrayed female characters and it's really ahead of its time in that regard if you think about it if you think about the to do being made about wonder woman finally giving you a female character on on screen who's incredibly powerful and you go well yes but the x men also need to be given their due. That's for... a good point. Yeah. The and because I think it ah, to the best of my recollection, in any of the first three films of the X-Men trilogy, the uh they never the like the there was never a oh didn't expect that from a woman, did you? sort of thing. Like the the idea that a woman couldn't be strong was never brought up or considered by pretty much anyone. Yeah. She is that they are they are legitimate threats to the people they oppose, whether they are good mm-hmm. or bad, and they are uh, the well well done characters. There's so much we talk about the twisting and turning uh, within the film of the plot, and that's one of the things that's fun to watch the film is that the plot does just twist and turn. I love that we get to see Magneto working with the X Men and seeming mm-hmm. very briefly to be an ally. Someone who's going to be yeah. in line with them. Yes, he he has, he jerks him around a little bit, but this guy. Oh, might, his little twist of what he does with Xavier side. at the end is fantastic. Yeah, and then he turns. He absolutely turns yeah. and is Let me going ask, to destroy all of humankind. Is so the one. Uh, sorry, go ahead. One of the things we talked about. I was going to say one of the things we talked about in our first version of this show was whether or not we can forgive Magneto after this because by the third film, 
we get to see when he's with Xavier, when, you know, spoiler alert for X3, uh, Xavier dies, and then someone tries to insult Xavier, and Magneto shuts him down, and for everything bad that Magneto is there trying to do, and we'll talk in the third film, I know we talk in that podcast too, about whether or not he is a redeemable character, he deliberately is going to eliminate every, every man, woman, and child on Earth. He's, mm-hmm. if given his way, he would have done it. He is the worst, the worst person ever to be alive is Magneto at that point. Like it, like it's, it, Stryker is, is only, Stryker is second to him in terms of, Stryker is presented as being the most awful and then Magneto is also awful, but we're also kind of on his well, side because he's a mutant. Well, here, let me, but, let me ask you that. That's yeah. an interesting thing. Both of them, essentially, both of them have divided uh, the world into two camps, you know, the us versus them. The, and both of them are convinced that the only way for their side to win is for the other side to be completely eradicated. Both of them are convinced that it is a zero-sum game. Um, is the reason that you say Stryker is, le- is less bad than Magneto at that moment um, just because of the numbers involved? Because Magneto yeah, would be... Ki- totally, if- totally the numbers. Yeah. Totally the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they are, they're equally as bad. But if I decide that the only way to meet my goal is to kill 10 people and you decide the only way to meet your goal is to kill 1,000 people, then you're worse than me is what it comes okay. down to. Yeah, that makes are, good sense. They're, they yeah. are, they're, I mean, I don't, want, I don't want to have either of them over. You know what I mean? <laughs> not, yeah, I know. Neither, I'm not going to barbecue neither with Neither one of them, them is invited yeah. to the party. But they will, you know, they're... The fact that we're talking about millions versus billions, yeah, there's, there's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's the worst. He's, he's, there, he's terrible. And the fact that we want to keep, kind of keep giving him, you know, we kind of whistle past it, don't we? Like the fact that he fails, we're like, oh, shucks. Okay, bye, Magneto. Yeah. At that point, it should well, be. It's, well, there's sort no. of this thing of like the, vi- you know, the, vi- you know, because it, it, it's such an accepted thing of, oh, the villain is always trying to destroy the world in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, um, at this point, it should just like be it's all not, we're ever going to do for the rest of our lives is trying to hunt down and murder Magneto. Because guess what? He cannot be allowed to continue to exist. He's sorry, mm-hmm. sorry, but morality yeah. be damned. Like there's nothing that every single person that he, that he kills from this moment forward that we could have presented that we could have prevented. Sorry, Magneto. There's no pass for you. There should be nothing. There should be sort of some sort of force. But force an X force, maybe that their entire job is should just be like, we're just going to get Magneto. It's all we're going to do every <laughs> single day for the rest of our lives. Who cares about whether or not we get along anymore? We need to stop this guy because given the chance, he's going to kill every man, woman, and child on earth. Stop him. Um, and he on almost a, does it a, again. On a, much, on a much smaller level, uh, going from going from the, uh, the massive let's kill the entire world thing, uh, one thing that jumped out at me in this with Magneto, what did you think of the scene where uh magneto and mystique are laughing at rogue and magneto says oh we just love what you've done with your hair which yeah like, like to me is magneto, an out of it's an out of character dick move on magneto's part i thought it's like like not only would i kill the world but hey <laughs> you're a dummy you're a big yeah, dummy I, yeah what does it say that ironically that moment of just it's just like, dude, that was just mean. Like that bothered yeah. me more about his character than the whole, oh, let's kill all the humans. Because <laughs> I was like, well, of course you're going to try to kill all the humans, but you don't need to be a douche about it. God. Yeah, I think that Magneto is best when he has gravely decided that this is a thing that, that it's an, almost even that it's unfortunate that he has to kill the humans. That mm-hmm. he is sadly doing what he thinks must be done. 
is that yeah. is when he's at his best. I especially so, with Ian McKellen's one. Whenever like Magneto, both Magneto and Xavier are at their best when they keep it classy. Yeah, and and him him doing that. Yeah. However, he redeems himself in the same plane ride when he talks to Pyro and says, "What's your name?" And Pyro goes, "John is." What's your real name? Yes, like that that's, was that's, great. And then you're is, a god among insects. Never forget it. Yeah, that is yeah. what it's about in terms of the way he perceives the world. That yeah. that our our human names, our humanity when we're mutants is just a skin that we have to wear in order to fit in. And why should we have to wear that skin? Because what we really are mm-hmm. is Pyro and yeah. Magneto. Overall, Eric Lencher and, and John. Overall, X2 did a tremendous, uh, did a tremendous job with Magneto. I mean, I can nitpick, but they, he was a, he was a cool villain in the first one. And I think a lot of the, what made it cool in the first one was, because Ian McKellen was like the last person that you would have expected to be cast in that. So it was kind of this cool new way of looking at the character. Um, but man, in X2, does he really just come into his own as as the ultimate big bad? Yeah, I no, there's no argument there. I think that's sort of the truth about everything that they... Had. I know that you don't like the fact she has to get out of the jet and that hurts it for you, but... Um, and. I will say this about James Marsden as Cyclops because I want to give him. A, I've made fun of him a lot. With him going, Gene, don't do this. Is falls so flat for me. His performance mm-hmm. falls flat for me. Here's the thing: James Marsden is a is an actor that I like, and I've seen him mm-hmm. multiple times. If you haven't seen him in Enchanted, he is a he's brilliant, oh, he's phenomenal in that, and yeah. and a really underrated little movie called Hop, um, where it's him and a CGI rabbit where. Keeping in mind, he's on the set, just him the entire time. It's him mm-hmm. and no one, and he is oh, wow. pulling off what he pulls off. Of that is is wonderful. He's I've seen him be good again and again and again. So I'm really looking forward said, to when we talk about Superman Returns specifically because of both James Marston's performance and his character in that. Um, and he's here's the thing about James Marston. He's really expressive eyes. He's really expressive yeah. eyes. Um, oh, that's interesting. So, so you limit that, and that actually, may, you know, not just for James Marsden, but that raises a really good point because so much of film is, um, film is the, the they say the difference between acting on stage and acting in film. Well, you know, to put it all into a nutshell, is um, on stage there's a certain degree of I am feeling this, and now I subconsciously or even consciously show that I'm feeling this because when the audience is, you know, 400 feet away, you have to amplify what you're doing. Um, whereas with film, the camera is so close to you that you cannot deliberately or even subcon you, you cannot deliberately show anything. You, if you have the thought or the feeling, you just have to let it be there. You cannot amplify in any way, shape or form, or it just becomes too much. Uh, and so much of that is captured in the eyes being the windows to the soul. Um, so it occurs to me suddenly, it's just like, so a character like Cyclops, like no matter what actor you put in there, they are massively hamstrung in what they can do because film work relies on eyes so much, even if we don't necessarily realize that consciously. Yeah, and knowing what I maybe would never... Th- give him the pass except I know what else he's capable of and it might be that he felt he needed to show because he couldn't 
trust with the visor on. It's I again, other people have done it. People have acted in glasses and done better than him. I'm not saying that he should have gotten an Academy Award for the for the performance, but I want to give him a little bit of a pass for what is essentially one poorly delivered line in a key part point mm-hmm. of the movie. He does well everywhere else that it's it's required of him to do well. So yeah. all that being said, we could go for another hour and 15 minutes talking about how great the film is, but ultimately the film is great. We really it, ends on, yeah. it ends on a cliffhanger. We see the Phoenix Force right on the water as the jet is taking off. We get a sense of ominous conclusion, which must be reached in the future while the themes of this film directly taken by the way from the seminal x-men comic book uh god loves man kills if you haven't read it it is Mm -hmm. much of this film is from it um but it is argued many times to be possibly the best x-men story so if yeah i mean argue like if you wanted to if you wanted to capture the very essence of what x-men is meant like a lot of people think x-men they think oh the dark phoenix saga was the pinnacle um when really no i think uh yeah, God loves man kills. That is the essence of what X Men is about. Yeah, or at least what this facet of the X Men is about. What the underlying societal themes of the X Men is about is there. It's just right there. The X Men are also mm-hmm. about giant galactic adventures and time traveling and and lots of other cool stuff. And sometimes the X Men are just about playing baseball using your powers, which is my favorite yeah. thing the X Men ever do in the comics. So well, I think it's so about- when when I say. Uh, when I say about, it's the the one of my favorite Capital things a that about. Uh, it's the yeah, yeah. well yeah one of the my favorite things that I uh, heard a Shakespeare uh, Shakespeare professor say uh, because you know on the surface level you know lots of people think it's uh, you know it's considered very de rigueur to talk about how Shakespeare is all about sex um, and the professor said okay first and foremost Shakespeare is always about sex secondly though Shakespeare is never just about sex. Um, and to me, the best, co- I mean, yes, every superhero comic, every comic is essentially about using powers in cool fights and, you know, and just the fun idea of, you know, people with powers doing stuff. That is always what superhero comics are about. And if they are not about that, eh, they're probably not doing it right. But the best superhero comics are the ones where it is never just about you know superpowers um so i suppose i should say like for me that's god loves man kills the pinnacle of x-men because it both is about you know x-men fighting with superpowers but also about everything else underlying it yeah well and i love what's so great about x-men is that you can parse those things out you can separate those things into this and to that. And you can do a version of the X-Men that is about giant galactic adventures. And you can also do a version of X-Men that is about racism. And then you can do another one that is like, what's mm-hmm. so great is oh, it's a very versatile so, title. Yeah. Um, so all that being said, what is your rating on a scale of, since this is X2 on a scale of one to five X's, since this is <laughs> the one time they're going to just call it X2, um, uh, which is my least favorite title, by the way. On a scale of one to five X's, what uh, what would you rate this movie? Go ahead. Uh, probably probably four. Um, yeah, I think, well, mm, torn between four and 4.5, but around there. Uh, this was a really great film. This still is a really great film. It holds up. Uh, and while it was not a... Um, 
it was not a total game changer. It was it was in its own way proof. Like if X Men One was proof of concept, uh, X Two was the X Men One was saying, "Hey, look, you give us the money, and we can give you something like really, really good." Um, and this little prototype shows you that it could be good. X Two is the delivery of the finished model, and it is that good. Uh, so it really so four point five. Well, it didn't necessarily. Yeah, let's. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say four point two five because I can. For me, I'm going to say I'm going to give it a full on four point five. It's hard to do better than this film. This film is is up there. With, I would say near perfect. Um, its ambitions are higher than the first. They're about as high as you could go with the superhero film. At the time, the idea was not to deliver stunning visuals, but when it needs to, it does. It has not you know, extraordinary action, but starts off with one of the greatest action scenes that I think I've ever seen. Gives you Wolverine in his in his glory. Delivers on so many things. I mean, this this movie is a. It's all. It's like. At one point, I went to Las Vegas, and I went to a Las Vegas buffet, and at this Las Vegas buffet, each one of the stands of the buffet was delivering gourmet food. They had a cook. They're cooking at every stand of the buffet. So they had some prepared stuff that was never out for longer than like 20 minutes, and the cook would also give you something fresh made. If you ask for them right there, you could just go around as much as you want to do that. And this movie has so much in it that it's giving you. It's giving you multiple threads and plot points, characters galore. It'd be so easy for this movie to fall apart under its own weight. And it gives you, I would watch any one of these as its own movie. The Wolverine movie here is great. The Magneto movie here is great. The, there's just greatness throughout this film, but it doesn't, the reason I can't get a five is that it doesn't stretch to the enormous ambition of an Avengers or a, or even a Spider-Man, like where this is about the same ambition as Spider-Man Homecoming and delivers it with the same aplomb as Spider-Man Homecoming, except also just has so much that it manages to tackle. So 4.5, maybe leaning close to a 5. Like it's hard for me to think of a superhero movie that is better, and a lot of people will put this on, this is in the top 5 of many top 100 superhero films. Is this movie is, mm-hmm. is ranked right there. So it is right there with your Iron Man and your Spider-Man 2, um, which I guess Spider-Man 2 is a good place to compare it because it's another film that is, it's hard to find fault in it. Uh, this is mm-hmm. a, an extraordinary film, an extraordinary film. But hey, ne- <laughs> next week we're going to use our mutant powers to go back in time to another X-Men film that came out after this one, back in time that we recorded it months ago because... And- let me tell you guys who are listening, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert to uh, to the reviews that we're going to be giving X3, uh, but the, the, the level of abject despair you will hear in Justin's voice throughout <laughs> the majority of that podcast is, I'm not saying that schadenfreude is a good thing, but if you, if you find amusement in it, you know... Don't be afraid to lean in. That's what I'm saying. X3, uh, watching X3 made me mad for like five days, <laughs> including after we yeah, talked about it. Was, it. I, I, I actually felt really bad. I was like, I'm sorry that like 
because it's like, cause we, we do this podcast for fun. Like the, you know, the last thing I want to do is ruin your day because we had to watch, cause even like, don't get me wrong. We're going to be watching a ton of terrible movies that I'm really looking forward to watching. Um, but, uh, I never thought to, uh, I never thought to actually make your day worse by making you watch a bad film. And, Yo, here's uh, and the that thing. is absolutely what X3 did. I arrived on a sunny, beautiful day, and I looked out over the horizon at the at the community pool that I've gone to, looking forward to going and just kind of looking around. And I'm like, it's a perfect day. It's like 88. I'm sitting there in my swim trunks. I'm having a great time just being outside, feeling just a little bit of a cool breeze on a perfect day. That's X1. Then I go to the high dive. And I climb to the top and I climb and climb. And as I get higher, I see the horizon in the distance and I see my neighborhood. I can see my house from here. I'm up high and I can't believe I'm up here at the top of the high dive. And I'm just, I'm at the pinnacle of what I think I could be doing with my experience of the pool being all the way up here. That's X2 and I'm ready for it. So I jump off and my expectations plunge along with my body into a pool that is empty and filled with concrete as I fall further and further and further down. And I was like, not only is this going to suck, but it's going to make the fact that I was up there at the pinnacle before, it's going to damage my memory of that. Because I was like, gosh, oh, part that's, of the that's, joy that's, Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Go. Because it's like, because if you high-dived into a pool with no water, you know, when you were recovering in the hospital later, you wouldn't think, well, you know, the dive itself was fun. You're right. It ruins the whole thing. So it's it ruins the trilogy, and we're going to talk about it there, but I think it gets to the point where the X-Men trilogy, because of, you know, it's like the way the Matrix sequels, you know, whether or not they ruined the Matrix, that would be an interesting for us to talk about. Is that a superhero film? It's going to be really interesting because there was a point when you swore to me that the sequels were better than the original. So I would love to see your your thoughts on that a decade later. I will, um, admit, and I will fully admit that was because I needed them to be better so much. I was in it <laughs> like for so many reasons. Um, um, oh, be uh, so we're going to talk about X Men uh, or about X Three next. Beyond that, I am realizing we have because we started this podcast like right before the summer. Um, we have been hitting a lot of the traditional heavy hitter. Uh, uh, Co- uh, comic book films the you know we've done our superman our avengers our x-men and everything uh what i am curious and i'd love to take a little bit of time to really explore some of the indie and alternative uh films for a little bit uh somebody we did the crow recommended we on don't the, forget the crow we did yeah the crow there was the crow yeah but that was the last one uh, i think somebody recommended that we uh that we do the specials sometime soon which i think is great so let me just put that out i will uh encourage folks to if you have an idea for an alternative or an indie film, uh, you know, or even something along the lines of Kick-Ass or, you know, just basically something that's say, not. I was going to say I would love, I would love to do Kick-Ass because that's a film yeah, that so I really dig. Let us, let us know what you want. Let us know oh. what interesting, weird, little quirky alternative comic book uh, or superhero film you want us to review. Uh, just yes, jump on please Facebook. Do. You can us see know. us on Facebook. I'm at Ninja Director on Twitter. You can contact me there as well. And you know what? I think I know what has to come after X3, though, because there's only one film that I feel needs to be used to cleanse the palette of X3 that came out right around the same time as X3. Uh, Arthur, can we put on our docket Mystery Men? Because... Oh, that's perfect. Yes. <laughs> Abso-freaking-lutely. Mystery All Men. All right, so there it is. X3 and then most likely Mystery Men. 
Uh, but for now, my name but, is uh, Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Stay super. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek so podcast Trek with Justin off, and Search Alexia. for Pop-Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Enlight Entertainment. 